Uh, turn over to Exodus chapter 4 in your Bibles, and I want to invite you to take a Bible uh, on us. If you don't own a copy, we've provided some at the center of each aisle. There should be plenty for everybody who needs one. We'd love for you to just to have it, for that to be yours, and for you not only to follow along with what we're going to do today, but to, to talk with us about uh, some, some helpful parts of the Bible to read if you're looking for an introduction to who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We would love to, to show you what to look at and follow up with you and talk through what you read there. That would make us really, really happy. Thank you for being here. So glad to see all of you out there. and Glad for what we get to do together this morning. At this time in our service every week, we spend a good chunk of time trying to understand what God has said and what it would look like for us to respond to what he said in faith. This spring, winter and spring, we're, we're spending our weeks walking through an, uh, uh, the story of the Exodus, one of the foundational moments in the history of Israel where God took his people out of slavery in Egypt and planted them in a new place where they could know him and worship him and and serve him rather than serve those who had ruled over them for hundreds of years beforehand. What we're doing while we walk through this story is learning about who God is. This is a story God saved for us, preserved in in this book so that we could know what he's like. And I think for that reason, right here at the beginning of the story, before we get into all the action... That, 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 that's still out in front of us, uh, we get a lot of character development. The, 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 the chapter we looked at last week, chapter 3, and then what we're going to look at this morning, chapter 4, in, in those two chapters, the action, such as it's been so far, grinds to a halt. In the first couple of chapters, you get, uh, you get a, a really wide span of years of, of activity that's going on. Uh, now we grind to a halt, and, and, and almost two chapters in total are given to the space of just a few minutes of a conversation between God... And Moses, the man through whom he's going to, to redeem his people. In fact, the, the chapter we're going to look at this morning is just a part two of the conversation we looked at last week from chapter three. And I think it just, it's just remarkable for the amount of attention that it gets. I think what we're meant to see by, by how long the, the author spends giving us all these details is that we're supposed to pay a special attention here. Think of this as like a flashing strobe light that says, here, look look here, don't miss this before you get into the action. What we're getting here is character development so that when those characters start doing things, we'll know where they're coming from. In chapter 3, which we looked at last week, uh, most of the conversation between God and Moses was God speaking. And most of what God was telling Moses in that chapter was, was truth about who he is and truth about what he was going to do, step by step by step. Moses had asked him, when God said, I'm going to send you to stand toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and to lead my people out of Egypt, Moses asked the obvious question, who am I? How, how am I going to pull something like that off? And God told him, in effect, you're nobody. You can't pull that off. I'll be with you. And Moses' response to that answer was to ask the next question that matters most at that point. Okay, so, so who are you then? Why should I be confident that you can do this job? Why is it good news that you're going with me? And God answered, in effect, I'm the one who can do this. I am. And I promise I will. And step by step, he lays out for Moses what he's going to do. Moses, in that conversation, his questions, he was focused in on his own weakness, right? He's locked in on what he knows he can't do. Obvious inabilities that no one's disputing. What God was doing is constantly bringing his focus back to God, to God's unending ability, to God's purpose that he's laying out for him with crystal clarity. 
And it strikes me that, that the end of, of, the, of chapter 3, where we stopped last week, would have been a great place for the conversation to end. At the end of chapter 3 was, was God having lined out, line by line, here's exactly what you're going to say to the elders of Israel. Here's what will happen next. Then you're going to take the elders from Israel, you're going to go to Pharaoh all, all together, and you're going to say this to Pharaoh, word for word for word. And Pharaoh's not going to listen to you, so then I'm going to have to humble him, and then he'll send you out. And when he sends you out, you're going to take all their stuff. It's like line by line by line. God is giving him the script that's about to play out. That would have been a nice place to end. And then jump ahead to Moses actually going back to Egypt and having that conversation with the elders and then them going to Pharaoh and then we're into it. But that isn't where the conversation ends. As chapter 4 opens, Moses is still asking questions. Moses is still raising objections. Moses is, is still not convinced, in other words, that this is a doable job. In other words, Moses is hung up in exactly the way I find myself hung up towards God and his promises year in and year out. I don't know of a place in Exodus where I have an easier time connecting with a character than I can connect with Moses here. This is an exchange that has deep, deep resonance with my experience and maybe yours too. So here's what's good news, good about this morning, friends. As we see ourselves in Moses' doubts we can see as God responds to him what we can expect from God in those doubts hopefully we see ourselves in Moses doubts and watching God respond to Moses we can see how God will respond to us in this case what I want to do to to try to walk you through what this text is trying to teach us what I want to do is is go over the whole thing we're going to read 17 verses of chapter 4 I want to just show you three moments from these verses of doubt met with God's grace. Three doubts from Moses, objections that he has to the plan God has just given him. And then three responses by God of grace. We're going to see all of those one by one by one. And then I want to come back over the same story and pull out three implications for us. Three things from this story that encourage me that I I trust will encourage you too. Three of many that we'll just start with this morning. What I want to do is begin by reading... Um, verse 1 and read through verse 9. This is the first section, the first objection from Moses, the first objection responded to by grace from God. We'll read that one, talk about it a little bit, and then I'll move forward. We'll read some of the other sections this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me in the honor of God's word while I pick up reading in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Sounds like the appropriate thing to do in such a situation. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So... He put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored 
like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned what I want to do first is help you to see three moments in these verses of doubt from Moses met with grace from God. Objection number one from Moses They won't believe me. God has just told him everything's going to happen. He's not buying it yet. And at one level, Moses' objection is entirely reasonable. I don't, they don't have a context yet for who Moses is. It's not like he was this well-recognized leader who'd proven himself trustworthy over years and years and years of leadership in Egypt. For 40 years, he hasn't even been there. So whoever did know him 40 years ago wouldn't likely still know him or regard him much now. He's not coming back with any credibility. And just think about what he's supposed to tell them. He's supposed to tell them, it's time to go. We're out of here. I'll lead you. Of course, they're going to wonder, and you know this, how? And then what's he supposed to say? Well, um, see, the thing is, I, uh, I heard this voice from a bush and it told me that this was going to happen sounds crazy it's the kind of claim I would expect to come from somebody wearing a sandwich board warning me that the end of the world is coming tomorrow because God told him last night in his dreams if I see that street preacher out there I'm not buying it I'm moving on actually I'm probably going to the other side of the street to make my way on to wherever I'm going sounds crazy and what they would likely say is Exactly what Moses predicts. The Lord didn't appear to you. You think you are. Prove it. On one level, Moses' Moses' doubt makes sense, in other words. It's super reasonable. But on another level, friends, and this is what I don't want you to miss. On another level, don't miss what's happening here. Moses has already asked God how he could be sure that he could pull this off. God has already told him not to focus on himself, but to focus on God. God then told him exactly what God was going to do including what he would say, including that they would believe him. In other words, God has already said, because I'm the one who's driving this ship, they will believe you. And now Moses is pulling the focus right back onto himself again. It's as if God can't do that because there's no way Israel could believe Moses. In other words, as if Moses' limitations were limitations for God. That's the way that he's treating God in this objection. Reasonable question? Well, yeah. But, but underneath that reasonable question is a persistent self-focus that doubts the power of God. That's what Moses is doing here. Now look at how God responds to him. God responds to this persistent questioning by giving Moses exactly what he's asked for. He gives him signs, something he can see, something to encourage him that God really does have the power God is claiming to have. He gives him the sign of the snake from a staff, 
He says, what's in your hand? And he says, a staff. Don't think of that as like, if you've read a lot of fantasy novels and you think of a staff as like this traditional symbol of power, you know, like staffs that lasers shoot out of or what have you, then you're thinking about this wrong. I mean, the the staff wasn't meant to be, well, of course, oh, he's got a staff in his hand, so he's got exactly what he needs. The staff was just like a normal shepherd's staff. It was just an everyday mundane thing. I don't know, maybe like a cell phone is now. I don't know. I'm not thinking this through. I'm thinking about this on the fly. But think of something normal that you normally have to hand, something completely random and disconnected from any source of power, period. And he says, oh, what do you got in your hand? Well, I happen to have a staff in my hand. Okay, we'll use that. Throw it on the ground. Snake. And of course, he picks it back up and it turns back into this normal staff. And God is showing him who's really in control. Then he turns to his hand, puts his hand into his cloak, comes back out. He's got some sort of skin disease. Leprosy is how the, the text translated. It doesn't exactly say that. Something obvious going on with his hand. And in that time, that was a, a, a large source of, of fear. Uh, disease was difficult to control in those days. It could spread quickly. It, was, it came with a lot of shame. It was something that people would have turned to their gods to, to, to overcome. And Moses now has this disease that he didn't have a second ago. He puts his hand back into his cloak at God's word. He pulls it back out. It's gone. What's God telling him there? I, I am the source of the kinds of change that you turn to the gods of Egypt for. I'm the one who controls disease. And then the water turned to blood is the biggest jab in the face of the Egyptian religion of all in these, in these examples. The Nile was, was viewed as an almost divine thing in itself because the Nile was what they depended on for life. Most of the people in Egypt lived close to the Nile because the Nile would flood and that would, give, that would create land that you could use to grow things in the midst of a lot of desert. And so the Nile was the difference between life and death. It was the key to their lives and they lived at its mercy. And God is showing here that I rule over this thing that you trust in. When I, I, when I decide to, I'll turn it all to blood. In these signs, God is giving Moses grace to work on him over time and teach him to believe. There was an offense in his question and God has not treated him in the way he deserved. Moses still isn't sold though. Objection number two comes in verse 10. Objection number two is basically, I'm not good at speaking. Objection number one was, they'll never believe me. Objection number two is, Moses said to the Lord, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. It's not clear exactly what Moses is saying here, if, if he has an actual speech impediment or a disability of some kind, or, or that he's just generally recognizing that there are no words that anyone could say that could persuade people of the truth of what God is telling him now. Either way, his inadequacy is, 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 is present to his mind. It's weighing on him, and he's not wrong again. Moses has moved on to another reason, rooted himself in his own inability to doubt God's promise. Now it's not so much about what Israel would or wouldn't believe. Let's just say Israel believes him. They're going to go along with the whole thing. Now Moses is saying, even if they did believe me, I can't lead them. I don't have the skill set. And look at how God responds to him. Look at how he reassures him. I can't do this, Lord, Moses has said. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? 
Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Translation, your limitations aren't limitations for the God who made you, for the God who's promised to use you, for the God who made your mouth and can teach it to speak. I'll be with your mouth, he's saying. So stop focusing on your mouth, on your own abilities, and focus on me. Look at the one who's with you. And with the Lord's answer to this second objection, Moses is driven to his final objection, and we go with him to the root cause of all of his anxiety. Objection number three, when you boil it right down, is basically, I don't want to go. Don't send me. Look at verse 13. This is my favorite moment. But he said, oh, Lord, just please send someone else. Every every objection he's raised, God has had an answer for. Point for point for point. He's been going back and forth playing ping pong with God over his objections. And finally, he's like, I know you're going to have an answer to all of it. I just don't want to go. Just send somebody else, please. He breaks down. And I think what we see is that the, 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 the reasons he's been giving, the objections, the arguing with God from the very beginning, it's not been about Moses doing his due diligence. It isn't just that he's just a super careful planner who likes to have everything lined out from the beginning. If it were, these reasons would have penetrated. These reasons would have gotten to him because God is giving him that. He is giving him the type A's dream scenario of a mapped out plan from beginning to end in which the power source that can accomplish it is the one that's going to do it. And Moses isn't faced because actually Moses' mind has never been the problem. That's his heart. It's his desire. To him, the whole thing sounds terrible. He just wants to stay right there and herd sheep. It's so human, friends. So believably. It's, it's so exactly what I think I would have said. This is not an argument. It's not about how much evidence he's got. It isn't about what's plausible or what isn't. His objections aren't intellectual. He just doesn't want to go. And up to now, he's been trying to explain why. And without an explanation, he's just left with his plea. Just, just anybody else. Just send someone else. I think God's response here makes sense too. Verse 14, we see that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. A flash of anger. Moses doesn't want to trust him. All that God has given him hasn't been enough. The needle hasn't moved yet. And clearly, just from what God has said and what we can just infer from who Moses was, it isn't that that God chose to use Moses because he had some remarkable or irreplaceable ability. It isn't like God stuck with this man and he couldn't move on. He could. In some ways, he should. But look what he does. As soon as we're told about his anger, I think we're expecting to hear him pounce. And instead we see him once again bend down to Moses to give him more. The Lord was kindled, his anger was kindled against Moses and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you as if God had already called him and when he sees you he will be glad in his heart you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach both of you what to do 
He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. As soon as we're told about God's anger, we're we're shown again God's grace. He promises to send this his own brother, someone he knows and trusts, presumably, who's a good speaker, whose, whose skill set balances out Moses. And he's still going to use Moses anyway, despite all the objections. What we see, and I hope it's clear enough now, I mean, it's a pretty simple, straightforward point that comes out in every one of these exchanges. Doubt upon doubt met with grace upon grace. Over and over, Moses doesn't believe that God can do what he said. And over and over, God meets him, reasons with him, helps him, and encourages him. I think the real question we need to answer about this text is why why all this attention so early on in the story given to this little conversation? Why why all this attention given to such a negative picture of what will become the book's main human hero? And we've said all along, God is the main hero of this story. That's really clear. But Moses, he's a model in some ways for Israel. He is celebrated here. He is going to be the main human hero of this story. Why all this time describing him in such a negative light? I think it's surprising. We're meant to, be, to notice it and to pay attention. What is all this? There's a lot of things that could be said. I, I just want to bring out three. Three things that encourage me that I hope will encourage you too. Here's the first thing that I think we can take from this story, from this conversation, and be encouraged by. This first one's actually a little more of a challenge. I do think it's encouraging, but it's a challenge that I need to hear, and maybe you do too. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know what your story with doubt, I don't know what has tended to cause it or, or, or trigger it. But I think one thing we can learn from what what we see in Moses here that's backed up by the way that that doubt is handled throughout the scriptures is that our doubts about God come from our heart, not just our minds. It matters that we know this because it it affects how we treat them. And I'll acknowledge as somebody who's struggled a lot with doubt over the years, I I, want to acknowledge, I'm sometimes frustrated by texts like this one where a doubter gets exactly what they ask for. Right, where, where somebody wants a sign, something they can hang their hat on and, and get it. Because I've never gotten anything like that, to be honest. Then, and, you know, to that initial jolt of frustration, I have to remember what I'm seeing in this text and what comes out in lots of other places where doubters are given signs, including especially in the ministry of Jesus, in the Gospel of John. Everybody's wanting signs. They're getting lots of them. They don't actually move the needle, not usually. We think that if we had signs like these that our, our faith would be stronger, but that just isn't how it plays out here or, or elsewhere. In fact, the Bible says we've already had plenty of signs of who God is, of what we can expect from Him, of what He expects from us. The Bible says in many places, including Romans 1, that, that he and what he's like, he is, he is clearly seen in what he's made. And I'm clearly experiencing signs of who he is in the fact that I enjoy all sorts of things in my life I didn't provide for myself. 
including the breath I'm using to talk to you right now. Why am I not able to see it? This story and other texts tell me that it's because my heart doesn't want to. Not fully. We often think about, maybe you're like me, I'll say I often have thought about my emotions and intuitions as something that my mind can, can sort of regulate. Right? Work through the mind in order to master the life. One of, uh, one of my favorite books that's challenging my thinking on this is by a guy named Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. And he talks about how, how uh, that actually is a way of thinking about the, that, that is actually one really common model for how the mind relates to the heart uh, that's in ancient philosophy. And a good picture of it is thinking about the, 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 the passions, the emotions, the intuitions as a kind of set of chariot horses that are you know, wild and running fast and free. And then the, the mind is the chariot driver that controls them, right? That keeps them in check, that makes sure they stay productive and on point. But that, he argues, this guy argues, and I think he's so right, that actually the better image is that the, the passions, the emotions, the intuitions are like the elephant. And the mind, its reasons, its, its, its ideas are more like the rider on an elephant where, I mean, maybe you, you got some control, but, but actually not a whole lot. <laughs> it's actually, it, it, it's the elephant that decides where the elephant's going, okay? I mean, it, it is not going to, to listen to that rider, not in, a way that, not in the way that we tend to think. That actually often, it's our heart that, that, that our mind serves. The heart, the mind's reasons serve the heart's desires, justifying them, explaining them. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Moses. When he, when he's reasoning with God back and forth, and God's got him point for point, evidence after evidence. But when he gets, you boil it down to it, it's just he doesn't want to go. Send somebody else. Like all along, his reasons have just been serving his heart's desire to get out of this impossible situation. And if doubt about faith is something you struggle with, you should know, friends, from this text, from my experience, from the rest of the Bible, you are in really good company. God's main instruments have often struggled too from Abraham to Moses to Gideon to Jonah to Peter and Thomas and all down the line. And what we're seeing here helps us understand how to view our doubts and how to interrogate them. When you're concerned, when you're wondering, when you aren't convinced, for whatever reason, at least part of your experience of that should involve asking questions of your desires. What do I want Friends, that's an open question. There are a lot of things that could affect what you want and that could affect the confidence you have towards God. A lot of things. It's, it's, I'm not trying to lead you towards one in particular source. I once heard an anecdote, probably shared it in here before. Just, let me give you some, a couple of examples of where this could be. I, I heard an anecdote from somebody who was in college ministry saying that he often dealt with college kids who were struggling with their faith. You know, And it makes sense. You're seeing... Uh, a lot of new ideas. You're encountering them for the first time. There are philosophical challenges and questions. The world seems bigger than it used to, all of that stuff. But he said, in his experience, that that isn't usually what it boiled down to, that you show me the college kid who's, who's now questioning whether or not it's all true, and I'll show you the college kid who's decided they want to be sexually active now. That this is a, a college kid for whom a God who made them and regulates their sex life is an inconvenient truth. 
Sometimes our doubts are affected by our desire to be accepted by people. Sometimes you may, you may be pushing back on things that the Bible teaches that, that you would rather it not teach because the people that you are drawn to, the people whose affirmation matters to you, think that the teachings of the Bible on that point are ridiculous. You don't want to be on the outside looking in. And it would be inconvenient for these teachings to be true. One of the things God has shown me over the years of my struggle with doubt is how often I'm doubting from my desire to have a kind of impenetrable, invincible fortress of rationality behind my faith. That, that I can't fully believe and, and be confident and stable if I, if I can't be sure that I can handle all comers. That, that there's not some blind spot that somebody's going to expose with a question that I can't answer. I don't want certainty. That, is, that doesn't come through my intellectual gifts. There's pride in that, friends. I, I don't know where, where your heart might be affecting your struggle with doubt. I'm not trying to, to script that for you. What I am trying to do is say, one thing we can learn from what we've seen here in Moses is that the heart is involved. What it wants affects what you think. And that one way to process your doubt is to ask your friends to ask you, what do you think you want? Here's a second thing I think we can learn, a second implication that encourages me from what God says to Moses here. The second thing is this. We can learn here that God does his work in us patiently over time. This is changing gears a little bit from the first one. This one is just straight up, peace-giving, grace-spreading, soul-soothing encouragement. Look at how God chooses to work in his people. Look at his patience and how he brings change to us in his own way on his own time. Look at him laboring over Moses, bringing him along step by step, dealing with his fears gently, showing Moses little by little who he's dealing with. Friends, the, the God who can turn this staff into a snake and back again just like that, the God who's got power over, over the skin to, to cause disease and remove it. The God who could turn water to blood. This God that Moses is dealing with. It's not like he just ran into a wall when he came up against Moses' human heart. And that he doesn't have the power to transform it in a moment if he chose to. Presumably that's exactly what he could do. He could choose to change you instantly if he wanted to. And sometimes that causes us frustration. Why won't he then? Because I'm sick of living like this. This tension, this wrestling match in my own heart and head over what's best and whether I want to obey, whether I can fully trust him, whatever it might be for you. I would prefer a kind of staff to snake instantaneous transformation in my own life. If you ask me, that's what I'd like. And maybe you would too. Why doesn't God change us that quickly? Friends, I don't know the answer to that question, actually. But I think from this text, from this exchange, at the very least, it's easier to see what God is doing in us over time, even if we can't understand why he takes his time. What he's doing in us over time is building faith, deconstructing self-reliance little by little, 
purifying us of our pride and our self-focus, deepening our trust in him and his love. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing for Moses. He's, he's bringing Moses along, breaking down his self-focus and self-reliance. Why does he take his time doing this? I don't know. But I think, friends, that that's probably the wrong question. The question isn't why doesn't he change us in all at once, the way he changed that staff. But why does he change us at all? Not why is he taking so long in Moses to bring him along step by step, but not why is he taking his time with me? But, but do I have the patience to wait for him to do his work in his way? God is patient with us, friends. And this text and others call us to a patience in our waiting for him. To accept that that he is teaching us over time, demonstrating his love, exposing our weakness, teaching us that salvation belongs to the Lord. So again, to put it slightly differently, the question for us is can we... Can we be patient to focus less on ourselves, less on what we've experienced, less on how far we have or haven't come, and on how likely it is, based on our experience that we're savable, to take our focus off of ourselves and our experience, and to put our focus on Him instead, on His power, on His word of promise, and be patient as He is patient with us. Paul tells us that the one who began a good work in us will carry it on. Is that enough? There's one more thing, one more implication here that I want to end with this morning to encourage you and to encourage me. Here's the third thing. I want you to see, I want you to consider from this text how the patience of God ultimately leads us to Jesus. The patience of God that we see playing out and how he responds to Moses over and over and over again is a patience that leads us all the way to Christ. And let me explain how. Remember what we're seeing here in this text. We're seeing truth about who God is that's going to define him from this point on. God has said about the Exodus story, I am the God of the Exodus. I am what you see here. This is what you can expect from me. So what are we seeing about this God with whom we're invited into a relationship? Friends, for me, the key moment, the tension that needs an explanation comes out in Moses' third objection and how God responds to it. Moses has said, please, just just send somebody else. I don't want to go. And God has anger at his unbelief. This challenge was personal. Whatever else it was, it was personal, a vote of no confidence in him. But God immediately jumps to grace. Like as soon as we're told about his anger, then we're told about this gracious provision of, of, of Aaron, Moses' brother, to, to help ease Moses' concerns. He responds with justifiable anger, and he just responds with a grace that doesn't make sense in that moment. How? There's no just explanation for it, for the jump to anger, from anger to grace. And, and friends, that, that juxtaposition, if you will, anger over sin, Grace and resilient love towards those who are sinful, that goes all the way through the Old Testament and never gets resolved. You've got laws that God is going to give to Israel, even later on in Exodus, that uphold this beautiful vision for what life can be. 
And you've got sacrifices that are given to people who are lawbreakers so that they can still live and know God's grace. You've got prophets who say, because of your rejection of this covenant, I'm going to bring judgment on you. I'm taking you out of the land that I've given you. And he does. But then those same prophets promise, I'm going to bring you right back. Not because you cleaned up your act, but because I love you and I can't leave you there. All through the Old Testament, anger, judgment, a righteous response to sin goes right alongside love and grace that's resilient. How? Friends, that that is a tension that the Old Testament doesn't resolve, and it's one of the clearest paths to who Jesus is. One of the most poignant moments, the most human of moments in the life of Jesus comes on the night of Jesus' death. Matthew's Gospel tells us of the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, where Jesus went to meet with God His Father to speak with the same God who spoke here to Moses. He has already said by this point in that gospel and in every other gospel that it was God who had sent him here to lead his people out of bondage to sin and death just like Moses had led his people out of Egypt. And he knew that the road of liberation was going to be a road marked with more suffering than any one of us could ever imagine. Jesus understood already because it was a road that he and his father had planned all along. And faced with that road, looking ahead to separation from his own father, looking ahead to what that would mean, and echoing the humanity of his people's former leader Moses, Jesus cries out to his father, let this cup pass from me. It's almost... Please send someone else. But not quite. In a crucial way, not quite. For he also prayed, not as I will, but as you will. And his father, hearing the prayer of his son made man, says nothing. Think of it, friends. This father doesn't answer his only begotten son whom he has known and loved for all eternity. Let this cup pass from me. And in effect, his father says no. So that he can show grace to sinners like me who struggle even to believe in him. And friends, the one who came not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father who sent him. He got up from that garden. He set his mind on the glory set before him. And he endured the shame of the cross. The grace of God toward Moses in his doubt and unbelief. The grace of God towards us in place of the anger that we deserve, it's offered to you and to me this morning only because in unimaginable love, he didn't answer the request of his only son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus died so we could doubt and be forgiven. And in his death, ordained by his father, embraced by our Savior, in his death for us, we have the sign above all signs that he is with us. He is for us, and he always will be.
Father, I pray that you would help us to see you through Jesus, to know through him of your love for us, to accept this sign and be encouraged by it. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to help one another to hold on in faith, to strengthen the faith that we have, and to look with clear eyes towards everything you've promised us that you alone are able to provide. Thank you for your word. Help us to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.